Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day in a rather deserted city of Westminster as once again we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I'm Scott Chaloner and I'm joined on the air today by Ollie Gold. Ollie is the co-founder of Popham's Bakery, an artisanal bakery with branches across London. Ollie, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thanks a lot for having me today. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, the purpose of this podcast, as I say, is to get together a variety of different perspectives on leadership. And leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the whole COVID-19 situation and businesses having to guide um, themselves through this pandemic. Um, Tell me, for somebody in your line of work, how has it been trying to navigate the last few weeks? Because I imagine it's been an incredible challenge. It's been hugely challenging um, right from the beginning. And um, for myself, it was um, it was really important and integral to to look after the staff um, first and foremost, and to really understand how they were feeling um, in the situation, whether they were comfortable coming to work, and whether they were comfortable being around people. As slowly the news of the pandemic started uh, started breaking, um, it was really important for us to obviously also look forward as a as a business. Um, and you know, we we realised that um, we were going to be cut down on our revenue streams massively, mm. and so it was how we could um, adapt quickly and and how we could um, change uh, what we do so that we could still um, give our product to the customers, which is which is what we really still wanted to do. Mm. Certainly, adapting um, is a huge element um, of business throughout this entire thing because it's been a huge learning curve, hasn't it? This um, this whole uh, situation and businesses have had to fundamentally change the way that they've operated. Um, is there anything that you have learned specifically from this experience that you think that you'll take on in future um, in running the business? I mean, going it was it was a completely different switch from us um, going to deliveries. It was something that uh, we hadn't done before and. Um, you know, I can't remember the exact date, but mid-March when, when it was really the, the news was getting serious and we understand that there was a, a real pandemic on our hands. Um, and it was, um, you know, a switch in, in, in half a day, a day where I got our amazing team uh, around me, uh, my, my co-founder and partner, Lucy, um, and our head chef and executive baker, Phil. Um, he... You know, we worked as as a three and worked really well in in quickly changing and adapting a menu that could be fit for the delivery, which is completely a different offering to what we do in the bakery. You know, Phil spoke to um, his team of chefs and and together they created this um, awesome menu so quickly. And it's really given us, you know, deliveries was new for us, but it's it's um it's allowed us to think forward in the future as to how we're going to have to adapt in the next six six months, 12 months, 18 months, we don't know. And so changing quickly um, and understanding what is a completely different uh, system for us has um, has taught us a lot and, and it's, it's been really valuable, I think, if we're looking at the positives in all this. Mm. And I think the way that you say that your staff have adapted during this period, I think that gives you plenty of reason for encouragement that those changes can be implemented while going forward as well. Yeah, it's... it's um, it was really good from from the start to to have a team of people who wanted to to adapt with you and you know it's not we we've had to you know tone down the menu to make it more simplistic and and the chefs just really wanted to help the company out and help the business and I thought that was um a really nice touch to have a group of people who who were so supportive 
of Poppins and so supportive of myself. Um, and yeah, that, that was really important part of part of the process. And would you say that their willingness to really muck in and help the business in that way is down to the culture that you've instilled within Poppins and the way that you've gone about leading these people? A hundred percent. I think it's, I've always been seen my, my strength in leadership is, is basically facilitating a, an amazing group of people around you. Um, it, it's something I've done from day one is, is, um, you know, we have people who are just brilliant at what they do and it's giving them the resources, the time, um, and, and the direction to do it. But it, it's, um, it's throughout these last few years and, and, my trust in them and I think that brings their trust in me and it's, I think that has allowed us and that, that culture that I've, I've tried to create here um, has, has allowed us to, to move forward in this situation for sure. Mm. And it's important as well um, when instilling a positive culture and taking people with you in business to be an inspiration to people in a way and really lead by example. Are there any examples of people who you maybe looked up to in your career who maybe inspired you? Um, from a young age, when, when I, when I started working in, in kitchens, it was as a, as a kitchen porter, just washing up and there were lots of people, um, that inspired me, but I think I can, I can more broadly, um, sort of attend to like a, a group of people who they really taught me that work ethic and that desire to work and just work as a team and work for each other. Um, and, and that's definitely when I set up problems, that was something that, um, I thought was so important, you know, to, to have that um, re- reliable team ethic that you, you want people to, to work hard and, and enjoy, really enjoy what they do. And that's in my first jobs, you know, there are these kitchens I worked in who, um, you know, we had, we were working crazy hours, but, you know, we were having such a good time and such a good energy. And I think that's so important to try and instill that uh, in your company. I can certainly see where you're coming from uh, there, Ollie. And I think those qualities that you talk about there, that hard work ethic and that enthusiasm for the work that you do, it's important on the journey to becoming a good employee and a good leader, isn't it, to have that drive? Because skills fundamentally is something that you can learn, skills that are relevant to um, your profession. But I think a certain degree of um, what it takes to do well has to come from within, doesn't it? And that's that self-motivation, that drive and that willingness to succeed in a way. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. And, and when we when we meet people who come to Poppins looking for a job, it's that it, it's. I look at that first five minutes of engagement when I speak to someone and see how they are as a person, their their character, their energy, and it's. I mean, you nailed it. You can you can train people, you can teach people, but some people you just know straight away. You have that connection, and you know that you can work with them, and that you can train them, and that they'll work for you uh, well for for Poppins as a whole and um it's just yeah it's such a fundamental um part of how we employ here is just employing people uh, rather than like their their skills as such Exactly right, because skills, um, as um, of course we've touched on there, is something that you can develop, whereas um, looking for that potential is um, hugely important. Um, we talked, interestingly, about sort of some of your mentors there um, as well, um, Molly, people that you learned from earlier on in your career, and you've taken really taken that forward when setting up uh, Popham's, your own business. Um, do you think that picking your mentors and surrounding yourself with positive people is one of the most important things that you can do as an aspiring leader? Yeah, I mean, positivity, as everyone knows, positivity, positivity in a workplace is, is fundamental and crucial. It's, 
it allows people to bounce back ideas off each other. It allows people to talk, to communicate. It allows people to be excited about, you know, new dishes. I love it when, you know, you've got a team of five or six chefs who are all, you know, having their lunch or dinner and, and you can see how excited they are talking about a new dish they want to put on the menu. And that's, you can't, that doesn't happen if the energy is not so good or if, if um, people are more negative. And that positivity around the place is, is crucial. And so it's, it's, it's surrounding um, the workplace with those people. And I think we've done really well in, in, in that here at Popham. So I hope to say we have. I quite like that idea as well that everybody's getting involved and everybody's putting forward ideas and the business is willing to try new recipes and try new things. Um, do you think it's possible to actually be a good leader in a way without trying new things, maybe getting one or two of them wrong and then just learning from the good things and the bad things to improve in future? Um Sorry, can you repeat that question? Okay, so based upon sort of that idea of the business encouraging those um, within to sort of try things and really um, sort of get new things out there, do you think it's it's possible to actually be a good leader without trying things, maybe making one or two mistakes and learning from them? Yeah, I mean, it, it's creating that environment where, um, you know, trusting people and trusting people to try new ideas and giving people with the potential um, giving them self-confidence to, to do things and, you know, if they're leading their departments and, and it's, it's, you mentioned mistakes there, you've got to understand you've got to allow people to make mistakes if you're going to trust them um, and give them, uh, give them choices to make and, and, you know, direction in what they do. Uh, but I mean, as, as a, from, from myself, it's, it's, you know, I've made, made hundreds of mistakes <laughs> from, from day one since, since we opened the business and, it's only been me learning from people around me who've, who've helped us, you know, get through situations. And, um, and yeah, as I've spoken about a lot in this, it's having that team around you that, that, um, that can, you know, drive the company forward just as much as, as myself, really. Exactly right. And, Obviously, leaders, of course, have their own limitations. I mean, no one leader is ever going to have all of the answers. And sometimes there can be a little bit of a pressure to be there and have um, all of the solutions at one time. But that's just not going to be the case, is it? But also, um, what's quite important that you uh, did mention there is that um, employees have to be able to have a self-confidence in order to get themselves out of their comfort zone and really push the boundaries in a way. And that's an important part of one's overall development, isn't it? Getting out of your comfort zone, trying things, being stretched. And you find that when people are doing that, yeah. it gets the best out of them. And that happens in times of crisis as well, like this. A hundred percent. I mean, we're, we're big believers here at Popham is that we like, we really see potential in young people and trust young people. And as I mentioned before, really understanding that, you know, as we all did, these they're going to make lots of mistakes coming through, and it's just being being there for them, being able to answer their questions. Um, but 100% is what I love doing and seeing is seeing a small potential in someone, and really like you know giving them the positivity and energy to to see that self confidence come out, and then it's amazing to see what people can do, and and it's, it's probably the thing I love most about my job is basically seeing how amazing. There are seeing how amazing the people here at Popham's are, and like seeing them something you told them a year ago, and, and seeing what they're doing now, and, and you know it's to a level that I could never do, and 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 it's really understanding that. I think some one of my first um, bosses I worked under basically told me you should you should only ever employ people who are better than you, and that sort of 
stuck with me in a way because it, it, it's really what drives the company forward. It's having a group of people doing doing uh, exceptional things, and and that's really I think the only way a place can move forward. If if someone is just stuck in their own ways and trying to to lead it themselves, I think it's it's um, when things move very slowly. Exactly right. And um, I think it's important to remember that investing in people and nurturing them isn't just about getting the best out of them, but also in enabling them to get the best from you as a leader as well. Yeah, sorry. Can you repeat that? Sorry. Yeah, so it, it's it's just as much about when you invest in people and nurture people, getting the best out of, the, of out, out of them, but it's also about them getting the best out of you. It's something that kind of works both ways, that, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. If, if you know, if you invest your 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 time and and um, resources in, into into staff, you you have to openly be there, be there the other side, and 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 try and direct them then through their their path and their career. And um, yeah, it's something that we feel our our heads of departments here at Poppins, especially myself, can really um, really are open and there, and you know, readily available to to speak and answer questions and. That's, that's really important as it touches on what I, I said a while ago, but you know, making feel people feel comfortable in a place and always being there um, if they have any queries or, or, or questions or, or any worries in a company. It's just making sure that you can always alleviate them. And we talked a little bit about um, the emphasis that the business has on the younger generations. And if we think about that, but also the business experience that you've accumulated since launching um, Popham's uh, three years ago, Ollie, if you were to give some advice to that younger generation, people who are aspiring employees, aspiring leaders, what sort of advice would you give them? Is uh, definitely just be prepared to make mistakes and don't, um, you know, don't, don't get upset when you make mistakes, but but talk to people, speak to people. If you, what we do see in in, in young people is, um, you know, they sometimes they're not sure if they can ask something, but it's just allow yourself to be as open and and free as possible. And everyone in a workplace wants to help each other, and everyone wants to to, to help the place grow. And that can only be with one one another. But you know, young people are such a such a fundamental part of a business and. You know, we have so many exceptional people who who come in from a young age, and you can you can see them not you know not even just in a in a business, but see how they are outside, and they just grow as people. Um, and I think it's really important for for leaders to to have trust in in the youth, and because they're they're exceptional, and 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 they can do a lot, and they can help a lot, and they have they bring such a vibrant energy, and and you know sometimes a different perspective to companies. Um, than, than other people. Absolutely. And if we think again about the uh, the future before I uh, do uh, let you go, um, Ollie, um, do tell me what you envision the next year holds for yourself and for Popham's and also what you hope to achieve in that time as well, not just in navigating the current COVID-19 situation, but also your ambitions for the other side of the pandemic. Look, as for anyone in this injury, it's it's going to be uh, it's going to be really tough, and and you know we've um, managed to do really well in that we've we've kept about twenty to twenty five percent of our staff um, to to run the delivery service, and in terms of of moving forward, I just see it as a like it's we've got to play it by ear and adapt to to what we're told and adapt to what we feel is right as well alongside that, um, and. There's going to be, I just see it as so many different stages um, of how we're going to go forward. You know, to so the next stage, we'll probably 
let customers come in um, and, and collect items. And the stage after that might be uh, takeaway items. You know, it's going to be tough for us as a restaurant to, you know, social distancing is going to be going for a long time. And we, we're, we're actually, you know, we're all of our tables are sharing and we've always believed so much in people sitting together and, and, and enjoying food together, which is obviously um, not ideal at all now. So it's how we can adapt as a restaurant and if we can open the restaurant when it's not at full capacity. Um, but these are all things that, you know, we've got slow ideas coming through now, um, but it's going to be a real sort of play it by ear, um, you know, week by week and, and see how we can see how we can get through this. Hopefully, you know, adding this delivery service to us, it's on the other side, it's going to, or, or not even on the other side through this, it's, it's allowed us a, an extra revenue stream where, um, you know, we can build on it and it might be something we'll be doing for, for a long time. Um, and then who knows, who knows in, in 12, 18 months time what it's going to be like. Um, but we're just going to keep doing what we do and, and trying to sort of, um, just speak to the staff and, and see what they want to do and see how they are. Um, and yeah, basically play it by ear. Certainly seems that there's um, a good uh, plan in place uh, going forward, despite all of the um, uncertainty for industry at this mm. time. And I think what might be nice um, as well, Ollie, is um, if in a few months, once we start to see the fog lift in a way, yeah, and we could maybe uh, revisit this and have you back on the air with us just to catch up on how the uh, the business is doing. Um, for now, on today's programme, we are just about out of time. But I have to say, it's been um, a real um, pleasure having you on today. And thanks so much for your time and coming on to speak with me for the benefit of the listeners. Thank you so much for having me today. Really, it's, it's been great um, talking, and um, I hope that um, that other people can can get through this and and all club together and support each other. Exactly, and uh, one message that I would also give um, to the uh, the listeners during this time, um, even when we are, of course, speaking about lockdown measures being eased, is to remain at home and stay safe because it does have an impact in saving lives. Um, so that just now was Ollie Gold, um, the co-founder of Popham's Bakery. Um, coming up next on today's programme, I will be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, Sir Andrew is the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. And as a former England cricketer, Strauss is one of only three England captains to win the Ashes both home and away. He is also the England captain with the highest amount of test victories. Um, I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. And that's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood services to sport just last year so congratulations on that yeah thank you um now there have been ups and downs in the career like any career including public and private disagreements with certain individuals and on that front i think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven marcus dress for giving you that stupid lord brockett nickname <laughs> um well my recollection was that it wasn't marcus dress who gave me that nickname ah. it was actually mark butcher uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place, 
and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... See your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance. Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness, they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, Mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, 
Um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after. Because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey, he looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Giles, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd, broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point you know, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but i, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough, and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it 
for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place and they uh they'll feel comforted there'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough if they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself um doesn't matter how charismatic you might be it doesn't matter you know how gregarious and and how um impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything will be on the 
all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... In fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired Another generation of, uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You'd never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses number one to 
fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing re wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, 
that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.